Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and my usual role on the network is as the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. Occasionally, however, I pinch hit for other channels on the podcast, and today I'm doing so for New Books in History. My guest on today's show is James Wright. Jim is the author of six books, Professor Emeritus of History and a former president of Dartmouth College, and a longtime advocate on behalf of Americans' veterans. Today we're going to discuss his new book, Enduring Vietnam. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk about the book with him. So with that, Jim, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in History. I'm delighted to be with you, Kelly. Jim, we always start out the same way, and so I'd I'd like to invite you just to say a little bit about yourself and how you ended up being, um, being a professor of history and a president at a university or a college. Sure. I was born in a small middle western town, Galena, Illinois. It's a Mississippi huh. River town, and and uh, my father had been in uh, World War II, and uh, I grew up uh, in the 1950s, and it was a time when everyone uh, really expected to go into the service, at least back in this mm. mining town. And in 1957, when I graduated from high school, uh, five of us, four classmates, and I joined the Marines together. Hmm. And uh, I thought it would put off for a few years my going to work in the local mines. And uh, I came back and uh, decided I, I did want to go to, to college after all. And once I started, uh, I've never stopped. But uh, I did I did work in the mines as well. So I, I managed not to avoid that turn. <laughs> but uh, I... Uh, I received a Ph.D. in American history at the University of Wisconsin in 1969, and I came to Dartmouth that year uh, to teach history, and I've been here now. Uh, next year, it'll be 50 years I've been on the campus. I'm retired, but I'm still still involved and uh, still interested in history. So I was thinking about this as I, I was composing the intro, because the... Um 
is how to describe Vietnam. And, and, and my first thought was George Herring's old title of America's Longest War, and that's by some measures true, by others not. Uh, I thought a little bit about the usual title for Korea, Americans Forgotten War, and that's mostly driven by my, my sense of um, what my students know about Vietnam. I'm wondering, given your interest in Vietnam, when, when, when you think about Vietnam, when you refer to it in your head, how do you describe that war? Do you have some short, pithy way? Um, and, and why did you decide to write about it? Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, there, there are several questions, uh, related questions there. Mm. Uh, Vietnam is not America's uh, forgotten war. Uh, by any by mm. by any measurement, it's not forgotten. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not certain how well known it is. Uh, yeah. And I would make a distinction there. Uh, everyone knows about the Vietnam War and the 1960s. They may, but they may not know much about it. And I'm not certain in the 1960s that most people <laughs> in this country uh, knew much about it. And and I, I wrote a book uh, in uh, that was published in 2012, Those Who Have Borne the Battle, which is a history of America's wars and those who fought them. I was really trying to look at who fights our wars and how do we treat them when they come home. And uh, in that book, I, I did have a chapter on the Korean War, but I had one on the Vietnam War, and uh, I was struck by by uh, working through that again and realizing, given my interest in, in how, to, how does each generation experience a war, what do they remember about it, that uh, how, how little most people really did know about Vietnam. Hmm. Uh, people still make references to it. They talk about avoiding Vietnam, avoiding another Vietnam, and that's always a, a prudent and good thing to try to do. But uh, I think we have to understand what it was. And my focus, though, was less on the diplomacy, uh, even though I, I do talk about that some, uh, and I'm not very, very... Uh, And, and 
I, I just was struck in working through this with the current generation how little we really knew the Vietnam generation and who they were. You know, Lieutenant William Kelly, who had headed the Army unit of My Lai that massacred the Vietnamese, uh, he may well have been uh, the most remembered soldier who served in Vietnam. Uh, uh, there were no, no public heroes that came out of the war. So I decided I wanted to, to, to get into this. Uh, you know, in, in, in the play Hamilton, Eliza Hamilton, the widow of Alexander Hamilton, sings, uh, who lives, who dies, who tells their story. And uh, war, uh, like uh, no matter how we try to cast it, uh, war is finally uh, a test of who lives and who dies. It's a contest to see who survives and who does not. And uh, those on the ground are the ones that have to uh, are involved in uh, in determining that. And uh, but I, the, the rest of us can be involved in who tells their stories. So I. I set out to tell the story of the generation that fought in Vietnam, really the baby boomer generation, uh, who they were and what their experience was. Uh, I I didn't try to moralize about that experience. Uh, I'm certainly honest about some of the terrible things that happened in Vietnam. Uh, But uh, that was not my, that's not my purpose. I just want to tell the story of who the, who these kids were, and they were kids uh, who went to Vietnam, what their experience was serving there, and what their experience was when, when they came home. And that's basically what this uh, uh, book is about, uh, an American generation and its war. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a wonderful approach. Um, but before, of course, we get to Vietnam, there's another generation, right, that the, the group of people who fought World War II, um, who end up in leadership positions, in, either in the middle middle leadership or in uh, Congress or uh, nas- positions of national leadership. Um, I wonder what that generation, what kind of common set of perceptions about the world and America's place in it that generation brought to their effort to figure out what to do about Vietnam in the 50s and, and early 60s. Yeah, I, 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 I talk about this uh, surely in the book. and I talk about uh, President Kennedy. And, and you know, when he was inaugurated in 1961, he talked about the torch of liberty being passed to a new generation. Mm-hmm. And he talks about his generation, the American, uh, the World War II generation. And uh, as as I point out in the book that, yes, they did take the torch of liberty, uh, but they passed it on rather quickly uh, to their children. And uh, that's uh, they're the ones uh, who ended up in the jungles of Vietnam. The the World War II generation, Kennedy's generation, Lyndon Johnson's generation, Richard Nixon's generation, there there was a, a legitimate... Uh, concern, uh, to be sure, about Stalin and the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a, a perception, and certainly in the 40s and 50s, of of not just if there would be World War III, but when it would come. And uh, we were determined uh, to be ready for that. Uh, we were determined 
after the experience of World War II, where we thought that we had been uh, too deferential uh, to Adolf Hitler, had allowed uh, this dictator, this aggressive dictator, uh, to develop political strength, to develop military strength, uh, to begin rolling over smaller states in Europe, and uh, we did nothing. Uh, that we we couldn't uh, we could not uh, uh, continue to allow this to happen. It became the the Munich analogy, the idea of, of when uh, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had signed an agreement with Hitler to uh, allow him in 1938 to occupy. Uh, uh, parts of Europe with a sense, with a promise that he wouldn't do any more, and of course he immediately did more. And so the the idea of the the Munich analogy was this uh, commitment that we no longer would stand still and allow a dictator to develop. It was almost uh, uh, a schoolyard lesson of uh, standing up to the bully in the schoolyard. If you don't stand up to the bully. He'll continue to bully you if you don't stand up to the dictator uh, and to the aggressive uh, dictator. Uh, he will continue uh, to move his military and take over places. And so this was the the mindset. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, uh, Jack Kennedy would make references to Munich, and they said their generation had learned. Uh, they 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 we were involved in a in a massive international struggle with the Soviet Union. And then uh, when the the communists uh, uh, took over the government of China with uh, the Chinese communists, so there there was a genuine threat. Uh, It uh, it became uh, exaggerated perhaps by the 50s, uh, certainly by Joe McCarthy and others who were concerned about Communists uh, lurking around every corner and uh, and uh, selling us out, and so there is this 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 greater paranoia, and so the World War II generation uh, brought up their kids in the 50s, and uh, perhaps your parents or your your family, mm-hmm. uh, it was the it was a duck and cover time. Duck and cover were drills that we had in schools. We had them in my small town in the Middle West, for heaven's sakes. The idea that get under your, you know, be ready to get under your desk in a hurry if there's a, a Soviet uh, nuclear attack and it's going to come. So we, we grew up with, with a sense that, that, that we lived in a scary, threatening world. And it was a scary and a threatening world if sometimes uh, the the nature of the threat was exaggerated, and we also uh, I th- were brought up with with a sense of obligation, of duty, of of a need to serve, and uh, we were the children I was of the World War II generation. Our our fathers had gone off to war when they were asked to go to war, and uh, that was uh, the responsibility of every generation. And so the the, the kids of the fifties grew up in this world, and, and uh, it, it's not uh, surprising uh, that so many of them uh, ended up uh, in the early years of the war willingly standing up and saying, yes, uh, I'll serve. You know, we have an image of the 1960s, of this uh, baby boomer generation decade, of, of the generation of 
of uh, wonderful music and free love and protest against the war. You know, about 40% of uh, the the men of that uh, generation served in the military. Uh, a pretty significant percentage of them did. Uh, uh, many who served during the war were volunteers. Uh, they 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 agreed to go. They didn't wait for a draft to go. Now it's it's you know many of the quote volunteers may have been draft induced. Uh, indeed, even when I joined the Marines before the Vietnam War in 1957, it was certainly in a in a world where we knew that there was a draft and we could be drafted at some point. So why not pick the time we would go? And why not pick the branch of service in which we would serve? And uh, there was surely some of this, and many of the people who enlisted in the by the middle '60s uh, probably were draft induced in the sense that they thought, "Okay, I'm going to have to go anyway. I'll go." But but I, I interviewed 160 uh, people for this book, Kelly, and and uh, I always asked them, "Why did you go? Why did you decide to go?" And uh, the number of them who, who answered this by talking about growing up in the 50s, uh, who, who talked about the, the threat of communism and their responsibility, who talked about uh, their father serving in World War II and said, I could not uh, go. My dad went, and now it was my turn to go. And so that that's, that's how this generation first came into Vietnam now. You know the, the the Vietnam is a is a is is a war, and the nature and the understanding of this war changed quite rapidly. And by the late sixties, uh, uh, the time that, that I think is more part of the the uh, the image, the folklore of that generation, more and more people were protesting the war, and there were some who were insisting uh, they would not go. But uh, and many did not go. Although it's it's important to remember that that uh, more names of the young men of that generation are on the Vietnam Memorial Wall mm. that went to Canada or went to prison uh, for refusing to go to war. And and I do talk about those. Uh, I did interview some of those who 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 didn't go, who protested the war, who went to prison, and then there. They, they have remarkably uh, strong and courageous, uh, courageous stories to tell, as well. But, but my friend, and so I, I'm surely not dismissive of them or of what they stood for and what, what they represented, because when they talked about the war as being ill-conceived, and and uh, when they talked about it as being immoral in conduct, when they talked about other things by the late '60s, they were largely right, after all. But uh, I'm talking about those who did did go to war and, and who they were and what their experience was. And uh, that's what uh, this book was about. That's what what I was about. That's what I was trying to do. So, so what would it have meant for America to have won in Vietnam? And, and why does America have such a hard time achieving that? Well, I think we had. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, the, you know, the sort of counter to fact. What would it have meant? Mm-hmm. We won is, is is an interesting question, and we can we can both uh, uh, speculate. We can all speculate on that. Uh, I, I I do think that we had 
difficulty uh, winning uh, for uh, several reasons. Uh, one is that uh, we really, Vietnam sort of became a surrogate place for a broader skirmish mm. with international communism. And uh, we thought this was the place, Southeast Asia, where we had to make our stand. At first, Jack Kennedy had really talked about Laos as the place where we'd make our stand against communist aggression. And uh, Vietnam became that place. So it, it was it was surely, that's where the war was fought. And uh, it uh, that's what the war nominally was about. But it also was about uh, a much larger global global conflict that that uh, played out there and it was certainly necessary to describe the rationale and it is about Vietnam and about defending a democracy there and, and I think that's where the situation became uh, uh, less solid and more rocky more more complicated it, you know, it was hard to talk about the government there as being a, a democracy uh, they they surely were not communists, and that was we in in a world that was that was polar. Uh, you either were a, a communist, or if you weren't, you were a democracy. And then we had some some interesting allies in the 1950s, uh, following and beyond, following that sort of view of the world. And uh, we uh, uh, we. We really went into Vietnam with an idea not to have a, quote, military victory. Lyndon Johnson uh, talked, uh, he sent the first ground troops in in March of 1965, and that's when it really became an American war. And he did talk about uh, to the troops about hanging that old coonskin on the wall, about having a, uh, an American victory there, but, but he also made clear uh, both uh, in his public statements and, and uh, his uh, some of his diplomatic exchanges, that he was looking for North Vietnam to negotiate a settlement where they would leave South Vietnam alone, and so that the troops were put in, and then the military action was was not necessarily seeking a military goal as much as it was seeking a political goal. You see, it will do to you. If uh, if you force us to come in and fight, therefore, it's better for us uh, to negotiate a settlement. And if you if 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 you look at wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly the same dimensions are there. None of these are quite about a military victory. We're not talking about uh, an army uh, landing on the beach at Normandy and uh, sweeping. Uh, uh, through France and liberating uh, Paris late in the summer of 1944. We're not talking about Marines coming on the beach uh, at uh, Iwo Jima and right, raising the flag on Mount Suribachi in February of 1945. There were no flag raisings in Vietnam. Uh, it was not about territory in a, in a conventional sense, about uh, gain and hold. Uh, there certainly were territories, there were physical places, geography that we wanted to control. 
but most of it was not about uh, control as it, as it was demonstrating uh, that we would fight. And and so we ended up in, in, in just a different sort of war uh, where we weren't seeking a, a, a normal victory. We're trying to certainly kill as many of the enemy as we could to demonstrate to them what we would do. Uh, and we kept increasing the number of troops that we had over there, thinking that uh, now we'll show them, uh, now they will be willing to, to negotiate. We increased some of our air t attacks, saying now they'll be willing to negotiate. And uh, it, uh, it, it wasn't going to happen in this way. For us to have truly, quote, won the war in Vietnam, we, we would have had to send in you know, probably a couple million more troops. We would have had to capture territory and have people occupy and hold it. We'd have to have been willing to use our firepower in a far more devastating way than we were, where there would be tremendous numbers of civilian casualties. And uh, we weren't prepared to go that far. And after the experience in Korea, there was always a great sensitivity. We got to make certain that we don't push this too far and provoke the Chinese because in 1950 and in, in uh, late in 1950 in November, uh, the, when the Chinese had warned us not to approach the, the boundary of the Yellow River and we had gone into North Korea, uh, they finally uh, sent a lot of their soldiers across and it became a different war. Lyndon Johnson didn't want this uh, to happen, and so the, the, there was this restraint. You know, in in in, in Vietnam, there were the rules of engagement were far stricter than they were in, in World War II, uh, and, and 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 it was a different different sort of war. I mean, there, we were certainly fighting people uh, in uniform, but we weren't fighting an army in the field. About eighty percent of the uh, of the military actions in Vietnam were initiated by the enemy, and uh, that's that's not that that we were sitting back softly and uh, being attacked. Uh, we were sending patrols out, basically inviting them to attack our patrols, and then when they did, we'd know where they were and we'd hit them very hard with artillery and air power. And uh, so the this this was part of our military plan, but these were. These were small units. These were squads and platoons, and and uh, not even regularly companies that went out. There were, there were other than a few places at Dakto and Way and Hamburger Hill and Quezon. There were not sustained battles uh, in Vietnam. Most of the most of the the combat skirmishes were were over in ten or fifteen minutes because the the North Vietnamese and uh, the National Liberation Front. Uh, their their allies in the south, uh, the the Viet Cong, as as we called them, they were uh, they knew that after ten or fifteen minutes they should break away because they were going to get hit with our firepower. And so the, the real exceptions are these uh, sustained battles that uh, that were fought. And so it was. Uh, let's go back out in the field again today. We'll walk over the same trail. We walked over yesterday. Uh, we'll be ambushed as we were yesterday, and we'll fight back as we did yesterday. And then we'll go back to base camp, and it's uh, it's just a different different sort of war. And, and I really marvel at the 
the kids that I interviewed that were out fighting. And by the way, I I really sought to interview people who were in in uh, infantry units, who were in combat units, or army infantry or paratroopers, because I, I just wanted to really tell the story of what it was to, to serve out in the combat uh, zones of Vietnam. And it was, uh, it was uh, a, a remarkably difficult experience uh, with, with heat and monsoons and walking through rice paddies and up steep hills and dealing with, with humidity and having enemy and, and what they call spider holes popping up and shooting at them and having to go in these, these tunnels after them and punji sticks, these sharp uh, sticks that were infected that were sitting up along the trails that people would step and uh, develop an infection. It was a place with tremendous variations in weather, much of it unpleasant with snakes and insects and rats and and just uh, basic unpredictability, never quite knowing what was going to happen next. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's a war unlike any others in which uh, uh, Americans have fought, really. Did the people... So this is partly a, a, a generational question, partly, I guess, a, a media question. Did, did the people going to Vietnam know what to expect? Not really. Uh, they, they Early on, uh, you know, in 1965, when the first combat troops went in, you know, the, the basic story in the United States was about uh, these heroic soldiers out fighting in the jungle on behalf of uh, democracy. And uh, this was the story. Within uh, within a, a year or two, as, as more Americans uh, were being killed, as there was no clear re- resolution uh, to the war, as we increased the number of troops, as the as the as uh, the combat uh, increased increasingly, there was a sense that the war uh, was wrong. That 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 uh, it was. Uh, ill-fated that we shouldn't be there and so the kids in Vietnam were no longer heroes but they were uh, there was a sense of sympathy for them and I think by by 67 68 more of them sort of began to, to, to resist the idea of going although most kids you know they, they said I you know the Tim O'Brien Tells a wonderful story about going up in the woods of Minnesota and trying to decide whether to cross over to Canada or not, and then uh, uh, he didn't. He's talking about a uh, a fictional uh, character, but it's clearly very much based on his own experience and his own thinking at the time, and most of them uh, still uh, did go. And then by by late 1969, when the story broke about My Lai, and the massacre of Vietnamese civilians, uh, all of the the image shifted uh, markedly from uh, no longer heroes in the jungle, uh, no longer uh, poor kids uh, who were being set off uh, uh, to fight uh, a cruel and nasty war. Now they became the perpetrators of a cruel and nasty war. They became the psychotics 
out in the jungle, and it was just such a negative view. And then, you know, they, they, they're, they're clearly were the were the Cali psychotics in the jungle. By by all means, they were there, but uh, most of these kids who were surfing out there were not that. But that that increasingly became the image that uh, they came home with. One of the stereotypes of of uh, the role the experiences of soldiers in Vietnam has to deal with race and the, uh, the at least the uh, supposed divisions and conflicts between blacks and and whites you have a pretty nuanced approach to this can you talk about how, your sense of of how race relations worked in Vietnam sure I think uh, in early on uh, the, there were more black casualties 65 66 disproportionate black casualties and many of them were were black uh, professionals, you know, that uh, were staying in the army, and they volunteered to be out in infantry units, and those infantry units were uh, were often disproportionately black. And then there was a great outcry about this, and about uh, the, the it reflecting a sort of racism on the part of the military. Probably you know, there surely was a deep racism on the part of the military. But uh, I'm not sure that that was a major factor then. Then by, by 68, let's say, you know, when, when Dr. King was assassinated and uh, the, the, the tremendous racial tensions in this country, obviously they spread to Vietnam. And, uh, the, you know, some of the, the base camps over there, some of the main bases uh, really uh, had sharp lines of, of demarcation of, you know, uh, tents with uh, with uh, uh, soul music playing and uh, tents with uh, country music playing, uh, tents with black flower salutes and uh, black power salutes and uh, tents with uh, Confederate flags, and there was all there were a lot of uh, fights on these bases uh, between uh, white and black. What I do point out is that. And again, my my focus has been primarily on the combat experience in Vietnam. Most people didn't carry that out into the field. They, the, the feeling has <coughs> been true there. Surely, I'm I'm not suggesting that somebody suddenly ceased to be a racist. But uh, most uh, most uh, of the kids, uh, uh, black as well as white, uh, said that you know that when you're you, you got to trust everybody. When you're on a patrol in a combat area, you, you've got to depend on everybody. And uh, as uh, as one uh, black soldier said, uh, uh, and nobody's going to call me a racist name when I'm walking around with a loaded automatic weapon. Mm. And it was just a, a different environment. Now, when they would come back to the base camps at night, they may well have gone uh, separated back into black and white. And, uh, and partied or drank beer or uh, smoked dope uh, with people that, that were uh, that were of their racial group, but it didn't carry out into the field in the way that so many people uh, thought it did. Another place you complicate our, I think, typical understanding of the war is the experience of veterans as they return home. And, and, and I'll talk a little bit about the longer term experience of veterans, but, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that first month or two or, or, or even weeks after they return. Is, is there some way to, how, how did veterans 
to what extent is the stereotypes that veterans were welcomed home on uh, and, 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 and viewed unpopularly, to what extent is, does that actually say something important about the experience of veterans coming home? Well, I, I, I don't think that they were welcomed yeah. home in most cases. Now, if, you've got to remember the, the Vietnam War, different from World War II, where basically people didn't come home until the war was over, uh, and different from Iraq and Afghanistan, where we have deployed uh, to, to those areas uh, forces in units. They go with their own battalion, and uh, they, they, they come back with their own battalion. And so they come back to a base, and you've got you know, several hundred people coming in together. Uh, Vietnam was a place where individuals uh, were were served uh, for 12 months. Marines had 13 months. Uh, they went over individually. They they flew over in charter planes, uh, typically. I went into one of the major bases, were assigned to a unit, went through some orientation, and were sent out into the field. And then after their their, their tour was up, they they came back to uh, one of the bases at a, a a day or two, not very long, uh, some sort of debriefing of uh, uh, weapons check, and they they got on planes and they flew home. And so they came with a group, but they may not have known anybody else on their plane. Uh, and uh, all of us, you know, somebody could be out in the jungle on patrol uh, and uh, uh, dealing with a firefight, maybe watching a friend be killed one day. And uh, three days later, uh, he's on a plane uh, flying to the Bay Area or Southern California or Seattle. Uh, when they got off the planes, uh, and many of them got off at, at public airports, uh, they, uh, uh, there were some hostile encounters. There were examples, certainly, of people uh, spitting on them. I think the, the number of these, and most people think, were, 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 were greatly exaggerated, part of it for, for political reasons. But uh, if they were not greeted with hostility, they, they were not greeted with warmth. Uh, they talked to me about uh, coming home, you know, maybe getting a, a private, uh, you know, private commercial airline flight from Los Angeles uh, to Kansas City and getting off the plane and being meted by, met by their, their family and going home. And uh, the, the thing that so many of them talked about is that uh, there was a, a sense of welcome home. We're glad to have you here on the part of family or friends, but nobody wanted to ask them about Vietnam. Uh, nobody wanted to, to come to talk about that experience. And, and, and most of most of these kids that served over there were not eager to come home and talk about uh, combat experiences. I, I don't know of anyone who served in World War II or Iraq or Afghanistan who's necessarily eager to come home and talk about these experiences to people, to civilians, to family. But uh, nobody uh, nobody asked them. They just uh, went on uh, with their lives, and uh, it was hard to go on with their lives. And then by the, the early 70s, certainly after My Lai, there was this stereotyped image of them being a a bunch of psychotics. You got to be careful with Vietnam veterans. Mm. Uh, yeah. The movie Taxi Driver, yeah, became sort of a, 
uh, Hollywood's version of this stereotype, and and uh, I had enough accounts of people who had to to deal with that. But most of them, it was it was not uh, encountering the the direct hostility. It was encountering some fear and suspicion. But most of all, it was just people were a bit embarrassed and didn't want to ask them about Vietnam, and so they never talked about it. Uh, one uh, one Marine said, "Well, at least when I go home, I can talk to my dad. He was in he would he was in Iwo Jima, and he said, you know, my dad never did ask me what it was like. He just huh. didn't didn't think I wanted to talk about it, and uh, he clearly wasn't sure what sort of that he wanted to hear my answer because there was this image of uh, of uh, a difficult, nasty war with." Uh, heavy civilian casualties and uh, we don't want to hear about this and so the I think the generation you know the, the there was no there was no recognition of post-traumatic stress as being a medical or a clinical disorder at that time it wasn't until the late 70s that the uh, that it was recognized medically as a, as a condition. In the early 70s, they talked about these kids who seemed to display uh, some symptoms of, of withdrawal, of difficulty re- re-entering society as suffering from what was the Vietnam Syndrome. Well, it wasn't the Vietnam Syndrome, but it was a way that time of, of again, talking about just how unique this war was. Your World War II veterans said to them, for God's sake, get over it. We did. And of course, they, uh, they didn't. The World War II veterans that came back with some sort of post-traumatic stress had as much difficulty getting over it as the Vietnam generation. But we're talking about something that's as old as, as Odysseus, as old as the Trojan Wars. I mean, you know, that the Shakespeare and the Civil War, they called it soldier's heart. And you know, it was shell shock. It was a battle fatigue. It was all sorts of names, but it was the the same symptom. And so there was no such thing as quote the Vietnam syndrome. And uh, it took a while for for this to be recognized. And finally, when when it was, uh, it uh, it did provide means of help through the Veterans Administration. But it was uh, it was you, people had to seek out the help, and there was still a an unwillingness, uh, certainly at that time, and today we still have some of it, of people unwilling to say, you know, I really feel kind of messed up, I can't sleep, I get angry, I get depressed, I get scared, uh, what's wrong with me? People don't like to say those things, and they surely didn't uh, then. So the Vietnam uh, generation had to, had to suck it up and uh, move on, and uh, that was a difficult thing to do. So I know our, our time is drawing to a close. I just have a couple last questions. One is, um, I'm wondering if the generali- genera- generalization, generational, sorry, clearly have not had enough caffeine today, generational yeah. lens you adopt for this book, um, does that have any, does that speak to us about America's experiences with war in the 21st century? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I think that the, the experience of war is, uh, is generational. I mean, there there were you know people who were born in the in, in the late teens and twenties, uh, or those that fought in World War II. Uh, my point is, we we need to tell the story of this 
generation, but it, it, it's something, it's a story that we all need to understand. Uh, we, we simply cannot say, well, this, this is their tale. Uh, and uh, it's it's more than that. It's more than saying this is the type of music they liked in the 30s or music in the 60s. We're talking about uh, an ex- something that they experienced on our behalf. And uh, and my point is that we all have to understand uh, what this experience is. It's too easy to send little boots marching off to the ground uh, if you don't really know what it is you're asking uh, kids to do. And so I think it becomes uh, something for all of us uh, to know about. So I'm I'm telling a story, but uh, uh, my, and my audience in some ways is the uh, baby boomer Vietnam generation, but it's far, far broader than that. Hmm. Um, well, it's a wonderful book. Uh, and I strong, there's way more in the book than, than we've had a chance to talk about in this interview. So I, I strongly recommend to the listeners I, to, to run to Amazon or your local bookseller and pick it up and, um, and read it because it's got a lot of good stuff in it. I, I always close with the same last question, Jim, and that is um, recognizing that you have probably heard and read an enormous amount of important, moving, significant material. Um, we're taping this in mid-April, and finals week is a couple weeks away, which in theory means I have a weekend where I can read something before I start grading papers. What What is a book, or I suppose a movie, that you can suggest that, that you read in the course of this research that that you found important for you, that, that you would recommend to, to myself and the, the listeners? Oh boy! I mean, there there are some wonderful historians of the Vietnam War, of the military war, and people like Greg Dadas and James Wilbanks and Kyle Longley. But but I have to say, and I think I talk about this a little bit in the introduction uh, to my book, uh, Kelly. The the people that I kept turning back to were were some of the fiction writers, but the Vietnam veterans, men who had served in Vietnam in combat who wrote about it, the Tim O'Briens and the Jim Webbs and the Carl Marlantes, because the, these books are just such such powerful stories, you know, the things they carried by O'Brien, Fields of Fire by Webb, Matterhorn, a wonderful book by Carl Marlantes that... that that, that really gets you in and, and, and forces you to confront and understand the nature of the experience in Vietnam. And I guess I was trying as a historian, as a, as a more scholarly writer perhaps, although I would hate to say I'm more scholarly than any of those three that I just mentioned, uh, that, that, that uh, I was trying to tell that story as well. What was it like... Uh, uh, to serve in Vietnam. I, I, I went to Vietnam and part of the research for this book and I walked the fields where many of these uh, kids had fought, fields that people had talked to me about. I I saw a lot of the sites. I climbed up Hamburger Hill, which is a site of one of the great battles of the war. And it just, it, it, it allowed me sort of to, to, to experience what, uh, what these people were talking about uh, in terms of, 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 of geography, not experience, in terms of obviously uh, being in a military situation there. And, and it was this that I was trying to capture. So I, I would suggest that, that uh, 
make sure you've read Marlantes and Webb and O'Brien and, and, and movies are are harder. You know, I, I, I always turn back to something like The Deer Hunter and, and I think it's just a powerful movie. I think it's 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 not always so accurate obviously as depiction of the Vietnamese and uh, but uh, and, and and I make reference to ironically Apocalypse Now, which I I think is a powerful movie. But I I, I have said that Apocalypse Now tells you as much about uh, the reality of the Vietnam War as South Pacific tells you about World War Two. It's, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a fairy tale about the war. Uh, the the you know the, these psychotics out there. Uh, who, who were in the jungle, but uh, it's uh, it's certainly a powerful movie. Well, I assigned Marlantes and, 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 uh, and yeah, go ahead. And then and then go always to Good Morning Vietnam. You know, mm. I interviewed for, for this book Pat Sajak, uh, huh. the television game show host, and uh, Pat Sajak uh, did uh, was a disc jockey in Saigon. And uh, it was a wonderful story by uh, by Sajak and his experience there. But you know, Robin Williams scored "Morning Vietnam." Everybody should see that. Huh. I uh, I've seen that, although it's been years. And I uh, and I assigned both O'Brien and Marlentas this semester in a in a class. But I will I will track Good. Webb down. I have not read it, and I will I will do that. Um, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Are you working on another book? No, I'm working on I'm working on some lectures and some op-ed pieces and some shorter pieces. But I, I don't think I'll take on another book-length project. But I've I've said that before, and I've written a couple books after saying <laughs> it. But I this time I think I probably do mean it. But who knows what I'll do? Well, if you should turn out to be wrong, we'd love to have you back on the show. But for now, thanks <laughs> so much for being with us. It'll be, it'll, it'll be my privilege, and thank you for a, for a wonderful conversation, Kelly. All right. Bye-bye, Jim. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with James Wright about his new book, Enduring Vietnam, An American Generation and Its War. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. Thanks for the download and have a great month. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.